Good morning, everybody. Morning. So we continue <clears throat> this morning with the narrative of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, we have finished Ezra, you remember, as well as Haggai at the end of March, about a month ago. And so we begin uh, Nehemiah this morning. Ezra and Nehemiah is really one book, and it is meant to be read together because the main themes cuts across uh, both, uh, both books. So by way of uh, review, oh wow, <laughs> I didn't realize that this slide is, uh, this slide is borrowed from Chiming. If you remember, he used this slide when he uh, introduced Ezra to us. I didn't know that it was each. <laughs> uh, there's so many clicks that I have to do. But anyway, uh, if you remember that the Jews were expelled from the land because of their unfaithfulness towards God. And after 70 years of discipline, uh, they were brought back to God and they were restored as a community. And the people were brought back actually in three phases. The first phase was led by Zerubbabel. Um, and that generation uh, really built the temple, right? Um, then the second phase is, was by Ezra, and Ezra went back to teach the people the word. So now we are here uh, in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's role is really to, to rebuild the walls uh, of Jerusalem. And if you notice that each of these phases of reconstituting the covenant community of God highlights a critical phase of their community life together. So the first phase of rebuilding the temple, for example, the temple was, of course, very critical for their faith, for their community life. The temple was where the Shekinah glory of God uh, dwelt. And the presence of the temple and all the ritual sacrifices assured the people of God's presence and God's favor. So that was a very important part of reconstituting uh, this covenant community. And of course, when Ezra went back, his role was to teach the people the word. They, this covenant community is, is meant to be a community of the word. Right? The word was how they knew what God expected of them, how they were to behave. So, they were, so that's why the, the word was so important to them as well. And then now, the third phase, which is rebuilding of the walls, as well as the repopulation of Jerusalem as a holy city. Uh, there were very few people prior to Nehemiah's return who were in Jerusalem. Uh, most, of them, most of the people preferred to, to live in the surroundings where they could farm, perhaps, and they could uh, have a livelihood. There was nothing much going on in Jerusalem at that point in time. So the, every city has to have a wall, so uh, Nehemiah needed to get the community to build a wall. So you notice that these three phases of rebuilding the covenant community actually recapitulates the formation of the nation Israel after they came out of Egypt the first time when God brought them back, uh, uh, when God first brought them into the land. 
You see, after God redeemed the people from Egypt, God did not bring them straight into the promised land. He brought them into the desert. He brought them into the desert to form this community of faith so that they knew how to behave, how to become this covenant community, community of God. He gave them instructions to build a tabernacle. So this tabernacle corresponded to the temple that they were now uh, rebuilding. Then he gave them the law at Sinai. This corresponds to Ezra's teaching of the law. And then only they went on to possess the land in Canaan. So this corresponds now to rebuilding the wall, this boundary, so that they could now have this land, as it were, uh, that uh, they could belong, so, uh, that they, they belong to them. Uh, this was where they can form, reform their identity, as it were. So really, the overarching theme of Ezra and Nehemiah is really the reformation of God's community, this community of faith back in the land. So just as God formed the first, the first time, formed this community under Moses, God was now reforming this post-exilic community under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, and then now under Nehemiah. And this reforming of this community of faith is really a testimony of God's faithfulness towards the Jews. It was in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah, during the exile, had prophesied in Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. So this reconstitution of the community is really God's keeping His promise to His people, this re reformation of this community, as well as giving them a future and a hope. This reformation of this community was for a purpose. God was giving them, as it were, a second chance as a people to fulfill His purposes for them. So let's look at... Ah, okay, so this last part here, let me go back. Malachi here. See, Malachi is here. So just as an aside, Malachi preached about the time when Ezra and Nehemiah was written. So Malachi is a very important book as you read through Ezra and Nehemiah because it provides you the context for where the people were, where their faith was at that point in time when Ezra and Nehemiah was written, so that you would understand a little bit better the intention of the author of Ezra and Nehemiah. I'll make reference to this uh, later on. But for now, we will take a look at the entire book of Nehemiah, and you can broadly divide Nehemiah into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 to 7, concerns the rebuilding of the walls, and the second half 
concerns the restoring of this community, the people themselves. The focus is now on the people. So we are going to go through Nehemiah in four sessions. Uh, the first session to, uh, this morning, uh, because God is faithful, then next week, uh, not next week, sorry, I think it's in um, maybe three weeks ahead because we have a break uh, of about two weeks in between. Um, and uh, we will carry on with opposition to rebuilding the walls, then the spiritual renewal uh, of the people, and finally, uh, uh, how the entire city, together with the people, was dedicated uh, to God. And at the end of the book of Nehemiah, Jerusalem then becomes the holy city, the city that is now set apart, that is dedicated uh, back to God. So this morning, I'm supposed to cover four chapters. It's a lot of ground to cover. Um, but let's try and do it like this. I will, we will read Nehemiah chapter 1 together. Uh, so you can turn you, uh, with me to your Bibles, uh, and we will read this together. And then I will summarize for you Nehemiah chapter 2, 3, and 4. Then what I'll do is I will draw a theme that I see as consistent in this whole four chapters, not only in these four chapters as well uh, as uh, the entire uh, book of uh, Nehemiah. And then I will see how this theme can now apply to us today, and then we will end off with uh, some applications uh, for our lives. Okay? So let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Hislev, in the 20th year, this 20th year of Artaxerxes, as I was in the Persian king, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, most likely this is a true, a real brother, uh, by relationship, uh, by, by familial relationship with uh, Nehemiah, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your, ear and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name 
dwell there. Verse 10, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man refers to the king, right? Now, I was cupbearer to the king. So that's chapter one. Chapter two is about how Nehemiah, after waiting about three to four months, finally had the opportunity to make his request to the Persian king Artaxerxes. And then the king granted him his request, gave him resources to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls as governor of the land. So a key verse in chapter 2 is chapter 2, verse 8. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. It is because of the gracious hand of the, God, of the Lord that the king granted his request. Then Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, inspects the walls in chapter 2, and then lays out his plans before the people. Chapter 3 is about how the people, encouraged by Nehemiah, strengthened by his words, then came together to repair the walls. It was basically, it's basically a description of who worked on which part of the wall. About 40 people, different groups of people, were mentioned from all walks of life. They all came together, from high priests to rulers to leaders to common people. They all came together to, to work on the wall. And then chapter 4 is about a very serious opposition to the rebuilding efforts by their neighbours, led by Sanballat, a Samaritan, and Tobiah, an Ammonite. These people were much stronger than the Jews. They had armies, well-organised armies. And at one point, they almost gave up building the wall because they were just physically and emotionally exhausted. And their enemies were ready to pounce on them. But we read in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 15, that God frustrated their enemies. And then they continued the work because Nehemiah reminded them that the Lord, who is great and awesome, will fight for you. You know, when he blows the trumpet, all come together, come, come to where the trumpet is, gather together, show up. In other words, Nehemiah was telling them, because God will show up for you. God will fight for you. So one theme that we can draw out from these chapters that is also consistent with the entire narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah is this, that God was faithful to the Jews even when they were unfaithful to him. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. Nehemiah prays, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Who keeps covenant means who keeps promises. He's a God who keeps promises. Because he's a great and awesome God, he has the power to keep his promises. In other words, we have, they have a God who can keep promises because he is great and he's awesome. The question, of course, for us is that, does he want to? Yes, 
The answer must be yes, because He is also a God of steadfast love. That steadfast love there is the word hesed in Hebrew. And that word really means a loyal kind of love that keeps on loving. It's also a very practical kind of love, not just an emotional kind of love, but the kind of love that works itself out in practical kindness, in meeting needs. The people had a problem. God comes and does something for them. That's what that steadfast love, that word hesed, means. It is a loyal, loving kindness kind of love, as it were. So we have, they have a God who wants to keep His promise and who can keep His promise. That is the character of God. A covenant-keeping, loyal, steadfast lover. What about the people? How did the people react to God's faithfulness? Nehemiah chapter 1, 6 and 7 says, tells us that the people were unfaithful. The people were disobedient. Their faithfulness was described by Nehemiah as being very wicked, very corrupt. In some of the versions, very wicked. They were wicked, it's described as wicked because this was how they responded to a God who has been so faithful to them. So that's why Nehemiah confesses their sin. And he appeals to God's innate character of faithfulness on behalf of his people to answer his prayer. So in effect, he was saying, remember how you have been faithful to your people in verse 9 by bringing them back to the land from the furthest parts of the world. Nehemiah probably had in mind God's promise to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 14, where God says, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. So this was how God has gathered them from all the different parts, from from all of Babylonia or Persian kingdom, of the Persian kingdom, and bringing them back to the land. Chapter 2 is an account of how God answered Nehemiah's prayer for favor with the king. This is an expression of God's kindness and faithfulness towards the people. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4. Nehemiah made a brief prayer just before he made his request to the king. The purpose of the author of highlighting Nehemiah's brief prayer is not just to teach us about prayer or to describe Nehemiah as a man of prayer, but really to attribute the success of Nehemiah's request to the king to God who answered Nehemiah's prayer. You see, in, verse, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, he says, And because of the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. And then in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, that's how Nehemiah encouraged the Jewish, the Jewish leaders to begin the good work of rebuilding the walls by testifying to them of God's gracious hand with him and the king's favor. Nehemiah pointed his people back to God, pointed their eyes back to who this God who their God was, how faithful He has been, so that they can be strengthened for the task. 
And then Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 15, it was God who frustrated the enemy's plot. It was really, the, the work had probably come to a standstill at that point in time. They were all worried for their lives because their enemies were really ready to pounce on them. They were all fearful. And then God frustrated the enemy's plans. We don't know exactly how this was, but probably their scheme and their plot was made known uh, to Nehemiah and his people so that they could be prepared, so that thwarted the surprise element of their, of their plot. So they could depend on God to fight for them because God was faithful to them. So in all these things, you may be wondering, yes, we can see quite clearly in the history of the Jews and in the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah that God was faithful to the Jews. We can see God's faithfulness to them throughout their history, from their formation as a nation to how God redeemed them from, uh, from Egypt through the Exodus and how now reformed them as, as a nation back in the land. So the question for us is, so what about us? Is God faithful to us? Can I trust Him today? Is God faithful to us? How the fact that God is faithful to the Jews mean anything for us today? And my point this morning is this, that if the Jews had any reasons to trust in God's faithfulness, we have even more reasons. From our vantage point, we can see that God's purpose for the post-exilic community was to set the foundations to prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ 400 years later. That Christ came for you and me. God used the Jews, to, that post-exilic community, to prepare for Jesus' coming for you and for me. Why were the city walls important? Yes, in the immediate context for that community at that time, it was for defense. It was to give them that space, that autonomy, to rebuild their community of faith so that they can embrace their identity as God's chosen people to grow in holiness, to grow in faith, so that the Lord Jesus Christ can come into that community. You see, Nehemiah really points to the heavenly Nehemiah, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Tim Keller puts it something along these lines. The earthly Nehemiah left the Persian palace to go to Jerusalem at the risk of his life. He made the request to the king at the risk of his life. But the heavenly Nehemiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, left not a Persian palace, but the heavenly palace, full of glory, to give his life for his people, you and for me. God was faithful to the people of Nehemiah's generation by giving them a leader, Nehemiah, who risked his life to help his people rebuild their lives, and to restore their community. God is faithful to us by giving us a Savior to give His life for us so that we can live and be restored 
to God's family. I highly recommend this book to you because because uh, Benny recommends this book. <laughs> Benny recommended this book to me. In fact, he's so happy that uh, he has Philip Yancey sign on this book for him. <laughs> it's a fantastic book, Philip Yancey, Vanishing Grace, Whatever Happened to the Good News. And he has this to say, In my lifelong study of the Bible, I have looked for an overarching theme a summary statement of what the whole sprawling book is about. I've settled on this. God gets his family back. From the first book to the last book of the Bible tells of the wayward children and the tortuous lengths to which God will go to bring them home. Indeed, the entire biblical drama ends with a huge family reunion in the book of Revelation. You see, from our vantage point, the end, with the whole revelation of God complete in the Bible, we can see the full extent of who God is and what He has been trying to do. He is a faithful father who wants his family back. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 puts it like this, he chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. And then He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You see, God chose us just as He chose the Jews, not just to be His people, but to be His children, to be sons through Jesus Christ the heavenly Nehemiah. And he chose us before history began. And all through history, including the narrative that we have in Ezra and Nehemiah, God has been working so that you and I can be reunited with our heavenly Father. If God, if the Jews had reasons to trust in God, we have even more reasons to trust in God. Can we say amen today? Amen. Okay, so now comes the applications. So how should we respond to God's faithfulness? So because God is faithful to us, we can trust Him, even when it hurts. You see, the problem with us is that we have a tendency to interpret whether God loves us by whether we are happy with how things go on at the current moment in our lives. We are quick to forget the times in our lives when God has been faithful, just like the Jews. And we forget the larger context of God's faithfulness in planning our salvation, even before the foundation of the world. Or sometimes we may think that God was faithful to me in the past. But is He faithful to me now? Is He still faithful to me? Does He still love me? Because if He does, why is this thing happening to me? So it is at such times that we need to remind ourselves that God's faithfulness is an innate and unchanging 
character of God. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 tells us, If we are faithless, He remains faithful because God cannot deny Himself. He has shown Himself faithful in the past, in the entire history of the Bible, in the entire history of the Jews, in Ezra and Nehemiah. He will be faithful to us. He does not change. We can remind ourselves that the overarching theme of the Bible, of what God has been doing all through history, or even before history, before the creation of the world, is to get his family back. And he has gone through tortuous lengths in the, word, in the words of Philip Yancey to get us back because we are his family and because he loves us. This is who we are called to trust, a loving, faithful, heavenly Father. And that is why we come every week. And what are we coming for? Just to a meeting? Just to a ritual that we celebrate? No, this is a family reunion hosted by our Heavenly Father to remind ourselves through the elements of the bread and the wine how faithful God has been to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So each time we take the bread and we drink the wine, we remember His faithfulness and we remind ourselves that however difficult, however painful our present circumstances may be, however wrong things seem to be at the moment, Jesus will come again and Jesus will make everything right. How do we know that? Because God is faithful. Our hope in Christ is secure because our Heavenly Father is faithful. The second application is this. Because God is faithful, it is not futile to serve Him. I made reference to Malachi. The people during Malachi's time, during the time Malachi and Nehemiah were contemporaries. So Malachi preached during a time, probably around the time when Ezra and Nehemiah was written. The people at that time says, or have this in their hearts, that it is futile to serve God. They saw no material benefit in serving God. Because they, they saw no difference between the people who serve God and the people who don't. The people who obey God and the people who don't. The people who are arrogant, the people who are evildoers, seem to be faring just as well as God's faithful servants. You see, we need to take a long view when it comes to serving God. And we can take a long view because we know God is faithful. He will perfect our work and He will reward our work. The walls that Nehemiah built for that generation was not, were not perfect. Those walls were breached. They were torn down again by the Romans in AD 70. Today, only a small part of that wall remains, the broad wall. Those of you who are going to Israel will probably see that. 
look out for it, the broad wall, just a small section of what was left of those magnificent walls that Nehemiah and his, and his people built. So, was all their effort wasted? No, it served the people for their time. It prepared the community for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than that, the physical walls of that Nehemiah and his generation built pointed to the new walls of the new Jerusalem that is coming, that is described for us in Revelation chapter 21. When the new Jerusalem will come down, made in heaven, come down to the new earth that God is going to form. You see, although the people built this wall of Jerusalem and its gates with mud, with stone, with wood, God will perfect their work and build that wall in heaven with that wall is described in detail with jasper, with pure gold, so pure that it is like glass, with precious stones, with pearls. Revelation chapter 21, verses 18 to 21. That's a description of the walls of the new Jerusalem, that perfect city made in heaven for the new earth. Somehow, the work that Nehemiah's generation put in made an impact and will contribute to that fantastic wall, that perfect wall that is going to come down. Whether literal or not, we don't know. But there's arguments. But whatever it is, the idea is that what is done here on earth points to that perfection that is coming later on. So that is why in, Nehemiah, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 17, how God replied the people who say that it is futile to serve God. God answered the people. And this is what God had to say. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, referring to those who are faithful, who continue to be faithful in serving. In that day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. It's coming. We don't see it now. Our job now is to work to be faithful servants. God will perfect that work and God will honour uh, us and reward us for that work. We take the long view in serving God. In the end, our work matters to God. And those who serve Him matter to God. We can take the long view because God is faithful. And finally, the last application. Because God is faithful, we must serve one another. Sometimes we think of God's faithfulness towards us only in terms of miracles. 
the direct and supernatural intervention of God in our lives. And that certainly happens. But more often than not, God chooses to show His faithfulness towards us through one another. He does this to build up the community so that we can be interdependent on one another and so that we can grow to love and to care for one another, to serve one another as His family. God was faithful to the post-exilic community through people like Zerubbabel, through Ezra, to Nehemiah. We too can be instruments of God's faithfulness to one another. I was impressed reading Nehemiah's prayer, how he felt for his people. I was impressed by his heart for his people, how he felt deeply for them, how he identified himself with them in his prayer of confession. We read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4 as well, that as soon as Nehemiah heard the report that his people were in great trouble and shame, he sat down and he mourned for days <clears throat> and he fasted and he prayed for his people. I don't know if you ever had to sit down upon hearing terrible news because your, your, your legs suddenly become weak. I remember what, when that happened to me. I was on the phone. My sister, who is in KL, rang me and told me my brother-in-law had just collapsed and passed away at home. I remember I was standing up and I had to sit down. I sat down because my legs literally felt weak. You sit down when you hear of news that really affects you deep and personally. Nehemiah sat down. He wept and he fasted for days. That's how deeply he felt for his people. His people were like family to him. But Nehemiah didn't just identify with his people. He didn't just feel deeply for them. He had compassion for them. He wanted to help. Compassion means you just don't feel. You just don't have empathy. You want to do something to help. He prayed. He fasted. He waited for that opportunity to ask the king to help. And that came not immediately. That came three to four months later. And all this while, you can imagine, he was bearing this burden for his people in his heart. All this while. And when the opportunity finally came, he risked his life and he made his request known to the king. Then he moved out of his comfort zone. He stepped down from his high-ranking position as the cupbearer. The cupbearer in those days was a very high-ranking position. You are right next to the king. You are a very trusted official of the king. You are maybe like a minister or you know, some very high-ranking official in the palace. Nehemiah, in his high position, could have sent somebody else to do the job. But he didn't. He bore the cost personally. He was willing to do it personally. I think this is the heart of a servant. Someone who is motivated by compassion to help his people. Someone who is willing to bear the cost personally to help. 
And of course, our best example is the heavenly Nehemiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't matter that he was the creator, their Lord and their master. When his disciples didn't want to wash smelly and dirty feet, what did he do? John described for us, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And not only did he wash, he dried them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Can you, can you see and appreciate the detail at which John went to describe this act of the Lord Jesus Christ? He slowed down the entire narration, bit by bit, action by action. Why? Because it deeply impacted John. He felt so deeply what Jesus felt for them. It made a deep impact on John. And not only that, right? For us now, we know after washing the smelly and dirty feet of his disciples, the Lord and the Master, became, who became a servant to his disciples, proceeded then to bear the ultimate cost of giving his life to serve us. So may the Lord, who did, who gave his life, who bore the ultimate cost of his life on the cross, seal that truth of God's faithfulness to us in our hearts. So because God is faithful to us, we can be faithful to Him. And we can do that by trusting Him even when it hurts. Serving Him by serving one another with compassion, willing to bear the cost. May I ask the musicians now to come up and to prepare us for the response song. But I'd like to give you an opportunity now to be an instrument of faithfulness to one another. How do we do that? Because I know the moment you go down and you start with the T, you're not going to pray for one another. <laughs> or very few do anyway. But let's do that. You know, one of the ways by which we can be an instrument of God's faithfulness is really communicating God's grace, God's love to one another, to each other, and to pray for one another. So let's pray. Let's, we can pray for a few things. One, those who may be going through difficult, painful circumstances at now, pray for God's grace to be sufficient. For those who are discouraged, jaded with ministry, thinking, of course, we don't dare use the words that it is futile to serve God, but deep down we're wondering, does it really matter? I'm so tired now of serving God. Let's pray for that fresh energy because our work matters to God. And God is faithful. God knows. And God will perfect whatever imperfect work we have. And it will count 
in the end because God is faithful for us. And for all of us, you know, we can pray that God will expand our hearts for one another to be instruments of God's grace. That we will see one another through fresh eyes the way in which God sees us as His family so that we can see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Can we pray for one another? So I'll give you some time, a few minutes, just where you are with, you know, who you're sitting, just find a partner and just pray for one another and then we can all rise and we can sing this response song together. Let's do that. I'll give you a few minutes and we can, we can do that. Please do that now. especially for those who are having painful and difficult circumstances if you are just share with the person next to you how they can pray for you how they can support you and if there's a ministry that you are considering and you're wondering should I serve this community pray commit that to God and pray that we can all that God will expand our hearts with His love. Shall we rise and let's uh, let's sing this song together and ask uh, Crystal to lead us in this song <clears throat> and declare to God that He is so faithful. with me 
Yes, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness towards us. And we pray this morning, God, that you will seal that truth of your faithfulness towards us in our hearts. Strengthen us, Lord, for every good work that you want us to do so that we can be faithful servants and so that we can trust you in all circumstances. And now may our faithful Heavenly Father make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work for His glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.